Let's try that. He is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah. Let's stand together and we're going to um, sing songs to glorify him and praise him for what he's done and that he is alive and he makes us alive as well.
name of Jesus. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're powerful. There's so much that encompasses the name of Jesus. Death has been conquered and we give you praise, Lord. You are worthy of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning on a beautiful Easter morning. Uh, we have a couple of announcements that, that we want to go through, and then after that, at this point in the service, we always like to spend just a, a few moments in prayer as part of our morning. Uh, a couple of announcements. First of all, we want to say huge congratulations to Jared and Sarah Splinter, who I'm pretty sure are not here, and rightfully so, um, on the birth of James Nicholas Splinter Thursday morning, 8 pounds, 8 ounces, 20 inches long. And so... Uh, we're pretty happy for them. We're going to also be arranging um, kind of a take-them-a-meal uh, type thing. Uh, and so if you're interested in being part of that, you can either talk to Joanne or call up the office, and we'll get you some information on that. Uh, also, just a reminder, coming up on April 30th, we're having our Serve Sunday, where rather than gathering here, we're going to do different uh, community projects out uh, in the community, we're arranging some stuff uh, in the community, uh, some stuff with the school, some stuff here at the church. So just, you know, show up here in your work clothes in the morning, and then we'll, we'll kind of dispense from there. And uh, then after that, we're going to have a waffle fundraiser uh, for lunch and um, to, for the, uh, the VBS team that's headed out to Utah. So we're going to work you hard and then ask you to pay for your own lunch, because that's just how we're doing it this morning. Um, there are sign-up sheets at the back. I think I w if the ushers, if you could just maybe take those and put them on, on the back table. They're just in the back pews. We won't pass them around this morning, but there are sign-up sheets so we can kind of get an idea um, for, you know, kind of where everyone is working. I know we have a lot of family visiting today. Your folks signed you up last week. You're good. You don't need to look things over. And, um, but you will be expected to be here on April 30th. So, and work close. Remember that. Um... And also scholarships. We're wanting to do camp scholarships again. Um, we just, camp is such a great thing for kids. And so if you're interested in either uh, an application or in helping to sponsor a kid, um, either talk to Joanne or, or call the office and we'll get that squared away. We want to have a few moments of prayer. And, uh, you know, there's a few people that we've been praying for regularly. Uh, Tiffany Dick, uh, daughter-in-law of Leroy and Judy, who was recently diagnosed with cancer. And uh, Leroy was telling me this morning that it's, it's been a good week, um, but there's, there's still lots to overcome. So we want to continue to pray for Tiffany, uh, continuing to pray for Kim Goosen, who is also struggling uh, with cancer. Um, also want to pray for Russ Smith. Uh, he's got some uh, ulcers and is headed in for surgery here pretty soon. Praying for that. And, and just our world, right? I mean, there's no shortage of grief and crisis and strife as we watch the news and everything that's happening uh, internationally and in the Middle East. And the other day we heard about many of our uh, fellow MB churches in Peru that are experiencing some pretty severe flooding and hardships there. So we'll have, uh, I'll give you just a, a couple moments of prayer and then we'll, I'll kind of close this out. But let's, let's have a few moments of prayer together. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you with just the things that are heavy on our heart. Lord, it's Easter Sunday. That's a great celebrative time. But sometimes there's just heavy things. Maybe others know about them. Maybe others don't. God, we invite you into that, that situation, that that relationship, that, that conflict, that, that struggle. 
Lord, we pray for Tiffany. Pray for Kim and for Russ. We ask for your healing and your restoration over their bodies. Lord, almost for certain all of us know someone else who's struggling medically. So God, we just silently, we just lift that name up to you, Lord. God, we thank you for for a day where we can intentionally remember the empty tomb and that you are risen. A day where we can come together in celebration and family and gather together and good food and festivities. Lord, we are we are Easter Christians living in a Good Friday world. Thank you for the hope and the joy that we get to live with. Thank you for the hope and, and the joy and the message that you have entrusted into our care. God, thank you for just the message that you love us, that you adore us, that you seek a restored relationship with us, and that that restored relationship is available just at the asking. And God, that you invite us into seeing your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's a remarkable gift to us, and we're so thankful. God, thank you for a good and glorious morning. May our thoughts be on you this entire day. We love you, Lord. Amen. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to
All right. I'd like all the children to come on down. Okay, I need Jeff and Nate to come sit right here. All right, and the rest of you, I want you to sit on the steps, and I need you to look this way. I have the absolute most incredible extra special story for each and every one of you today. It is a story about how great our God is and how much he loves us each and every day. Do you know on a day much like today was gorgeous out and God looked down upon all of his people that he had created in his beautiful, beautiful kingdom. And he thought, oh, If I love them and I give them food from heaven, I nurture them, I care for them. I provide everything they need, their water, and I keep them safe. Even when there are bad people trying to get them, I'll part the waters so that they can go into a land of freedom. But you know what? It was tough. God looked down and he said, you know, these people very tough eggs to crack. Oh, man. Their hearts were hard. They couldn't see God. They didn't recognize how God loved them. And their shells around their hearts were hard. And they got all fickled. And sometimes they believed in how great and wonderful God was. And sometimes they turn to other things. And then their life crumbled. And it was bad. Well, God, he loved his people so much. Just the way he loves each and every one of us. He loves his kingdom with all his heart. And his greatest desire, his greatest hope is that each and every one of us would come to recognize who he is in our life. And so he did the biggest miracle of all. He decided because people couldn't see him, they couldn't see how much that he loved them, that he decided to send his son, Jesus Christ, And wow, what an amazing day it was when Jesus Christ was born as a little baby. And he grew because his mom and dad nurtured him and loved him. And God gave him incredible words to share with us about how much God loved us. And he taught us how we treat each other with love and care. And he grew up. And so did everyone around him. And on great occasions, they were so excited. They thought, he is the king of kings. And they even said, Hosanna in the highest. And they thought he was amazing. He made miracles. He did miracles. He fed people. He cared for the sick. He taught us. Taught us so much that all of his words are in the Bible that we share today. 
so that we can learn about him and draw close to him and recognize how God loves us so incredibly much. But there were evil people. Darkness came, and it was slimy and yucky. Why, that yoke covered everything. And even people who loved him, they were slimed too. And they decided, no, it's too scary to love Jesus because bad things will happen. And so God, who is very, very faithful, he said, I will never, never give up on my people. I created them, and I love them forever. And so he knew that he would have his son Jesus die on the cross. He knew that only Jesus could take all our sins, our hurts, our pains, everything that sometimes keeps each and every one of us inside of a dark place, like sometimes inside of an egg. And you know what? An eggshell. And sometimes... We don't want to accept Jesus as our personal Savior. But you know, when Jesus died on that cross, the most remarkable, incredible thing happened. That invisible stream of God's love came when Jesus rose to heaven. Like, it was amazing. You can't see invisible. Close your eyes. You can't see. can't see things that are invisible. But I think that that invisible stream that connects each and every one of our hearts together, when Jesus rose to heaven, that invisible stream came down and touched our hearts, and hearts were warmed by that. And people saw the light, like it was like really bright, like you would need sunglasses or you'd have to close your eyes because it's so bright and beautiful. That invisible string connected everyone's hearts together just like it does ours. When Jesus died, he made it possible for us to feel that love that only God has for us. And so then, when, when people were still sad and they went to the grave, that tomb was empty and they knew, yep, we don't have to doubt this. It is all victory that Jesus rose from the dead. And you know, it doesn't go, doesn't just stop there. When Jesus rose from the dead, great things happened. There is new life. When we love him, when we accept Jesus into our hearts, when we recognize that God is a great God who loves us, and we accept Jesus into our life, then we want to share. We are so renewed And we have new life, just like when a baby 
when a mother hen nurtures her baby chick, then all of a sudden that egg cracks, and what comes open? It is empty, and there it is, a baby chick, new life. And that is the same for us. When we recognize, keep your hands on your own bodies, and we'll have the baby chick. We'll have the baby chicks at the back of the church after the service so you can see them. When we recognize that God is the greatest God of all who loves us, and we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts, that invisible string of love connects all of us together. And we experience new life like forever and ever. And just like the newborn baby chicks, we too are newborn in our faith in Jesus. Now, it just doesn't stop there. Because when your heart is so full of Jesus, and you learn so much about him from your parents and from Sunday school and Wednesday night, then the Holy Spirit fills you up, and you too want to go share the most incredible love story ever. And then you will share something that is so wonderful, and that is Jesus. So others have new life. So today what I have for each one of you is a little bag, and the colors of the jelly beans in here will tell the, tw the story of Jesus and what that means for us today. And inside is a little piece of red string so that you can remember that when you recognize that God is a great God who loves you and adores you, and when you reach up into heaven and accept Jesus into your heart, and you grab hold of that invisible string of love, then you will be able to share what great things God has done in your life. And that goes on forever and ever. That is the beginning of being reborn, having new life. Isn't that the coolest forever? So that when, when we go to heaven, we'll sit right there with Jesus and sing his praises and get a great big giant hug from God. So what I want you to do right now, what I want everyone to do right now, is just for a moment, I want each of us to recognize that God is a great and powerful, ever faithful, loving, adoring God who thinks we are so awesome. He loves us. And then what I want each person to do is that I want you to, to bow your heads and to reach up and accept Jesus and I'll grab hold of that invisible string so that the Holy Spirit can fill you with all of God's love. Okay? So I want everybody, everybody, that means all of you, of course, too. Okay, I want everybody to reach for that. Okay, let's bow for a word of prayer while we're hanging on to that invisible string of God's love. 
Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for the way that you adore us and care for us through all the good times, through all the bad times, through all the darkness, through all the beauty, for those joyful moments that we wait for and anticipate for love. We, Lord, we thank you so much for adoring us. We thank you so much for Jesus and for the opportunities that you give us. We count it all victory. We thank you, Lord, for inspiring us through the power of the Holy Spirit to share your love and your eternal life and salvation with others. Lord, inspire us today. Love us forever. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so each one of you gets a jelly bean bag to tell the story. God bless you and have a beautiful Easter. a moment there, I thought all the parents were going to be getting a new pet in the house. And then I thought, man, if we do this every year, it won't be long, and we're going to have to upgrade to, like, puppies and ponies, and that's going to be complex, man. Like, I don't know how we can keep doing this year after year. Well, we have been going through the the book of Mark, and um, just kind of exploring it uh, as we go along, but then, of course, to Easter, we jumped ahead to the, to the very end. Um, you know, in the New Testament, we have four accounts of Jesus, or the Jesus event. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we call these the Gospels. Then after that, we have kind of a, a biography of a lot of what happened in that early church, and then everything beyond that is really just letters that some people wrote to some other people on how to do this Christ thing. And so we've got these these four books that give us the Jesus event, and then really the rest of the New Testament is really just explaining how do we take that and how do we live that out? How do we work that out? What does that mean in our, in our day-to-day lives? Like, let's get kind of nitty-gritty with this thing. And so that's really kind of the, the rest of the New Testament. But so we've been going through Mark, one of the different Gospels. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's also believed to be um, the first one that was written. Uh, Mark is believed to have gotten a lot of his stories from Peter. Um, also, he was uh, worked alongside uh, Paul, and so he collected all these stories, and he arranged them together in, the, in this letter, then, that he, he wrote out. Uh, last week, we celebrated Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is when we remember Christ coming into Jerusalem for that final week where he rides in on a donkey, and so they, they've, he's got that final week in Jerusalem. And about 40% of the Gospels actually are dedicated to that final week. Uh, Thursday, we celebrated, well, I don't know if you would call it celebrated, we remembered the Last Supper, and so we did that, uh, it's called Monday Thursday, Monday being the Latin word for command, when Jesus commanded at the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. So on Thursday, we remembered the, the Lord's Supper, uh, and then on Friday, he was crucified, and then today, on Sunday, we celebrate his, his resurrection. 
And so we're, uh, we're just going to jump ahead in the book of Mark to the end that, that talks about the resurrection. I am in uh, chapter 16, and I'm going to read the first eight verses to you. And feel free to read along if, if you want on your app or on your Bible or whatever. But I'm in Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, and trembling and astonishment had seized them. Oh, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The first part of that, uh, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. From the very, uh, and very early on, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Their Sabbath was on Saturday. And so we believe that Christ was crucified on Friday because it talks about the next day being the Sabbath. Uh, and then this says the day following the Sabbath. So that we, we believe that this was on Sunday uh, when this happened. So they're going there the, the day after on Sunday morning. We've got these two ladies, and they're walking along with spices because that was a thing back then. You covered the dead body with a whole lot of spices, presumably to help hold back the smell or something, but that was a thing they did. Interestingly, no mention of the 12 disciples because according to another passage, they were still in hiding. So bravo to the brave women who actually went to the tomb while all the men locked themselves in some closet. Verse 3, they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they knew about the stone, but they did not know about the soldiers, and they did not know about the seal. Okay, now from, we, we see in other spots that, that the mouth of the tomb was big enough that you could either stoop down or look in, or you could actually run into, right? So we're probably looking at anything from like three to five feet. This is a pretty big opening. Now we have to have a stone that's big enough to cover that. And what they believe, how it was probably set up, is that there would have been like a, a trough or a groove in the front. And so you had this big round rock. And so you kind of, when you were ready, you pulled the wedge or something and it rolled, rolled down a small slope into place. So for someone to move it, you actually have to push this thing uphill. So it's pretty big. But they didn't know about the security detail. See, after Jesus was crucified... Some of the religious leaders went to Pilate, and they said, Look, Jesus was saying that he would rise again three days later. We're nervous that some of his disciples are going to steal the body and then spread the rumor that he rose three days later, so you should do something about that. So Pilate says, Fine, here is a temple guard. The temple guard were the praetorian. They were very good soldiers. Some of their training techniques were written down and even used to train our Green Berets in Vietnam. I don't know, maybe they're still... Uh, in place today. Uh, with the Praetorian, each Praetorian got six square feet, three feet by two feet, 
and he guarded those six feet, and nothing got past that. He could be executed for falling asleep on the job. So this was a very disciplined group of soldiers. Secondly, they put a seal on the tomb, where they would take rawhide and clay, and they would kind of put the seal on it, and they would stamp it with a government seal, and for anyone who broke that seal, you could be executed. So there is no way that the soldiers are going to let these ladies break the seal, get past their security detail, roll the stone up the hill so that they could, you know, whatever it is that they wanted to do. Verse 4, they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So the women arrive, and all they find are, like, pretty much just the aftermath. Right? Like, the stone has been moved. Uh, one other gospel actually uses terminology not so much like stone was rolled away, but more like stone was picked up and set over here. Um, there, I mean, there's no soldiers. I don't. Maybe there was signs that they had been there. We're not sure. Jesus has already been raised. Like, they just, it's just the aftermath of, of, of what had happened earlier. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter uh, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they look in the tomb, and they see this angelic-looking dude sitting on the right-hand side. And they're alarmed, and rightfully so, because there's a lot about this that is just alarming. Um, he then proceeds to tell them their current emotions. He's like, you're alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He proceeds to tell them their purpose for being there. He proceeds to tell them that Jesus is not, that, that he's alive, that he's not here at the moment, that he's gone elsewhere. He gives them visual evidence that Jesus is not here, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then he gives them instructions to go and tell other people that Jesus is going to uh, meet them in Galilee. And so, obviously, he knew about all these previous conversations as well, too. The original book of Mark ends with this, this phrase. And then they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's it. The original book of Mark ends at that. If you look at your Bibles, you will see a little note, something to the effect of some of the earliest manuscripts don't include, and then it mentions the next 11 verses. They, the, the earliest manuscripts don't include anything that follow after this. And so, one, what follows, I do believe to be full-value scripture. It, it's not second-rate. But the scholars are telling us that based on manuscripts and based on writing style, this other part was not added until maybe up to like three, four hundred years later. May, or maybe Mark did write it later on, or, or, or maybe some of his followers kind of added it on, or that kind of thing. But originally, Mark ends it with the two ladies running away scared. And that's it. Like, that's the, the, the cliffhanger that, that, we, that we end with. Now, a couple things, just kind of in their defense. First of all, even though it says they, they run away afraid, we do know from other Gospels that they went and told the other disciples, as they had been instructed. Good job, ladies. Uh, secondly, afraid is kind of a strong word. This word is also translated as respect, reverence, worship. So it's not so much terror or like fearing for safety. It's more just kind of overwhelmed with the moment and the guy in the white who just read our mind and 
knew everything that was going on and Jesus isn't here and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a bit overwhelming. But as you look at the book of Mark, Mark includes no resurrection stories other than empty tomb. He includes no evidence for Jesus' resurrection other than empty tomb. We don't see Jesus at all. Last time we saw Jesus, he was dying on the cross. We don't see him anymore in the book of Mark. Last time we see Jesus at his death. Mark ends his book abruptly, but he also does so on purpose. It's believed that Mark got his stories from Peter. Uh, We mentioned he worked alongside Paul. He lived after Jesus anyways, right? So three different ways, Mark knew all of the resurrection stories. Mark knew the full story. He knew about Jesus hanging out for another 40 days. He knew about meeting up disciples in the locked room. He knew about doubting Thomas. That poor guy gets a bad rap. Um, He knows about the ascension. He knows about Pentecost. He knows about the road to Emmaus. He knows all of these stories. But for some reason... His purpose, his his agenda, an an abrupt ending served what it was that he was trying to accomplish. He did not think it was worth it to include all these other resurrection stories and and stories about Jesus. Mark just intentionally leaves us with this, this cliffhanger. And it's brilliant. It's actually brilliant for a couple different ways. Mark opens his book with the phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he uses the phrase, basically, in the beginning, God. Basically, he's almost mimicking what happens in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, and then he says the good news, or or the, the evangelion, that's where we get our word evangelism, this good news. In the beginning, evangelism, the person of Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, same word, one Greek, one Hebrew. He is, the, he is one appointed by God to be the King and the Ruler and the Redeemer and to save us. So the person of Jesus is the Christ. And on top of that, like if that all wasn't good enough, by the way, he's also the Son of God. And then he spends the next 16 chapters trying to convince us of that one point that, that he opens with. So that's how Mark opens For the next 16 chapters, he shows us that Jesus is mighty in word and deed. We see a lot of that going on. He gives us a lot of action stories to prove the point. While he's going through this, the whole time, he's showing how the disciples are really wrestling with this, though. Okay, wait, Jesus, he did what? Like, all the time, you see the disciples freaking out. And it, I I mean, they weren't dumb people, but this is just kind of big stuff that they're wrestling with. And so Mark, Mark is highlighting it. And, and Mark brings us to this point, and I believe that at the end, he's saying we have the empty tomb, we have all these stories of word and deed, we have the disciples who have wrestled with it, we have these, these ladies who are running away afraid, away afraid, but in many ways it brings it back to the reader as if to say, all right, here's the story, now what say you? What will you decide? Will you follow? Or will you run away afraid? This seemingly abrupt, awkward ending really serves well to throw it back into our lap to say, and how will you respond 
to this message. It forces us to choose. Secondly, when, 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 you, when you read Mark, you hear the stories, you, you get the report that Jesus is alive, and then that, that's all you get. In many ways, that mimics our situation. Because we hear the stories of Jesus, we hear about the empty tomb, but for us, that, that's in many ways kind of all we get for evidence, right? The disciples went on to experience more evidence personally, right? They got to, to meet with Jesus on, on the road to Emmaus. They met him in the locked room. They, they felt his scars. They watched Jesus ascend into heaven. And so we hear about that, but we personally don't get any of that. We get the stories, and we get the empty tomb. And from that, we're supposed to decide, yay or nay. And so he really kind of resonates with everyone who's going to read this for the next few thousand years on, on, on how we will respond. Thirdly, it's commonly held that Mark's book was actually focused on discipleship more than any other gospel. His focus is not convincing us that Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew, does, Matthew leans in on that. Luke leans in on that. John does some of that. The other guy's got it covered. That's not Mark's focus. He's not trying to convince us that Jesus rose from the dead. He was trying to convince us that Jesus is God. But he's kind of going about it differently. But really, a lot of the book is not so much Jesus rose from the dead, but a large part of Mark is simply how one follows Jesus. And sometimes in Mark we get good examples, and sometimes we get bad examples, but it always comes back to this heavy emphasis on how do we follow Jesus. So what do we do with this? Easter, we focus on the risen Christ, on the empty tomb. But the gospel that we're studying doesn't give us any Jesus story after the crucifixion, just the empty tomb. So first, we have to decide whether or not he is the Christ. Whether or not he's the one who came to save. All of life, eternity, goodness, everything begins from that point. Don't even worry about anything beyond that. That's the first thing. Is Jesus the Christ slash Messiah? Is Jesus the Son of God? And then, if so, the good news from that. Are his words, his deeds, and his empty tomb enough to convince you that he is the Christ? Will you and I follow Christ, or will we run away afraid? Secondly, how do we follow Christ? What does it look like to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And really, that is, that is just the, like the crux of Christianity Right? Is what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? How, how, do, we, how do we follow that? And so, to that end, we have, we have spent a lot of time trying to, f- to figure this out. And we came up with kind of our contextual, contemporary expression of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And so we're saying that we want to grow disciples and multiply churches who glorify God and transform communities. It's on the banners, in case you missed it. The terminology that we have embraced is that we want to glorify God. This is our way of saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The word glorify is just such a nice, full 
rich word that embodies not just love, but also worship and submission, and to seek the glory of, and to seek that someone be exalted and proclaimed and lifted high. So we want to glorify God. We want to see communities transformed. This is our way of saying that we want to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we want to do so so effectively that you actually see a difference in the community. No culture, no community should ever remain the same when the church is present. The gospel will always change culture. To do those two things, we want to multiply churches. We want to do that globally so we support and love and learn from international missionaries. And we visit them and we tell them to come visit us. We want to multiply churches nationally so we support and learn and, and love national church plants like Green, Greenhouse Church Plant in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I've been taking vision trips there, taking people from the church there. We've got a, I've got another one lined up with a local pastor and a local businessman wanting to get some of the pastors out of the southern district out of there. want to continue to take um, people from here out there. And the VBS teams that we continue to send out there, that's a huge part of that. We want to multiply churches regionally. And we have no idea what that means, so we're trying to figure that out. And so we're studying and researching what, is it, what does it mean to, to pursue rural Nebraska with the gospel of Jesus Christ, possibly using the two of multi-site. Major church planning efforts are, are targeting cities, and that's great, but it leaves a vacancy in the rural communities. And who understands rural Nebraska better than a bunch of rural Nebraskans? I mean, these are our people. So if not us, who? Additionally, when this church was founded in 1878, it had multiple locations and multiple congregations. And so we're praying, God, do you want us to go back to our roots on that? Because we really don't know how. But you cannot multiply a church until you learn to multiply disciples. So at the very core of all this is that we want to be disciples who make disciples. First and foremost, we want to be individuals who love and follow Jesus. And then we want to find ways to take what we have been given and pass that on to other people. Like working within our strengths and our skill sets and our abilities and our gifting, but finding a way to pass it on. And folks, when, when, it, when it comes to mentoring and discipling and even evangelism, you don't have to fill their cup, but you can certainly empty yours. You can say, I don't have everything you need, but I can give you everything I got. This past week, I was listening to a, a podcast. So good. I wish all of you could just listen to it like three times in the next two weeks. Um, Carrie Newhoff, episode 133, all, talking about a culture of, of leadership development within the church. And I was convicted many times. It was both horrifying and fantastic. And um, at one point, he was talking about how with, within churches, oftentimes, you know, when, when it comes to, to having other people involved in, in ministry, we either dump or we delegate or we develop. So dump is just like, I'm exhausted, here's the material, I survived being thrown into the deep end, I think you will too, peace out. Right? Pretty sure all of us have been dumped on. Delegating. Hey, we need some help. Would you be willing to do this thing? But developing. I want to walk alongside you for a season. I want to do all I can to set you up for success. I want to give you everything that I have learned. So that someday, whether here or another church or somewhere else, you will have everything you need to just knock it out of the park. 
I heard that and I thought, oh Lord, I've done too much dumping and delegating and not enough developing. And developing is more than just preparing people for a ministry setting. It's doing all you can do to help them thrive in their relationship with Christ, to create God-centered homes, to be spouses and parents that God wants them to be. Our, our team leaders are currently going through a great book, and we need to finish that up. But, but afterwards, I, like we, we have got to figure out this peer-to-peer development thing. So we are setting each other up for optimal success in life and faith and ministry. At another point, he says, you know, we've spent so much time building audiences and not armies. And I know armies, like, that's not really a Mennonite word, but, you know, they're both A words, so it helps you remember it. But he says, according to Ephesians 4, I have one role, and that's to equip you for the work of the saints. Just one. So my apologies to you, I have taught you, but not always trained you. For us to be disciples who make disciples, we've got to figure out developing and move away from dumping and delegating. Mark's gospel, at first glance, his ending, his original ending, is very odd. It's very sporadic. It feels poorly planned. But I think it's brilliant. I mean, he knew the rest of the story. But he had a specific agenda in mind in doing this kind of abrupt ending. He wanted you and I to wrestle with, who is this man? Is he really the Christ? And if so, will I follow or will I run away? And some people run away. I mean, that happens, right? I don't know if that's you or a friend or asking for a friend or a relative, but sometimes that happens. Picture this. You decide to follow Jesus. Then, for whatever reason, you're like, eh, I'm out. And you, you go off path. For a little while, for a long time, whatever. And then one day you decide, this is ridiculous. I want to get back on the main path. I don't like this anymore. The minute you pull a 180, I mean, it's like Jesus is standing right there saying, Hi, I stalked you the entire time. Path is over here. Let's go. It's interesting to note that when this angelic man in the cave told these two women, when, when he gave them their instructions, that they were to meet up with Jesus, that in, in many ways that was actually a command to continue on the journey of discipleship, because up until this point, Peter just denied him three times, the twelve bailed on him, and now they're all in hiding. Like in many ways, the twelve bailed on Jesus. The angelic man doesn't even touch it. Path to discipleship is over there. Get moving. First question, will you follow or will you run away? Mark has given us this abrupt ending because he wants us to bring us to that point and force us to deal with questions. And this is really the most central question of your life. Secondly, what does it look like for us to follow? Mark gives us a lot of great instructions in his gospel on discipleship. Well, what does it look like for you and I to be followers of Jesus? What does it look like for us to be disciples who make disciples? How has God uniquely crafted you and I and even this, this church to share the most amazing message that humanity has ever known? 
This Easter, we celebrate an empty tomb. And may we choose to follow the one who made it empty. And may we choose to be a disciple who make disciples in whatever way that looks like. Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your servant Mark, who wrote down this remarkable account of, of your life. And God, thank you for the brilliant way that he ended it. And how it just brings it right back into our face. Do we follow? Or do we run away? And what is our decision regarding the man Jesus? We see the evidence of his words, the evidence of his deeds. We see the evidence of the empty tomb. What say you? And God, may we figure out and develop a culture of developing. A culture of being disciples who make disciples, who share freely with one another all that we have learned, of setting people up for success in life and faith and home and business and ministry. God, we've got a lot of work to do. So we really need your help on all this. We invite you to lead us, to guide us, correct us, speak to us. It is our joy to love you and honor you and serve you. We love you and worship you. Amen. Please stand with us. my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see body bound and drenched in 